And in Romans, we were in chapter 3. Hope you didn't mind this morning, we went on with it. Um, and we did uh, some recapping, but we did the recapping because of what I wanted to share tonight. And if you didn't get it all plain before, you see, and you go on to something else and you misunderstand, you'll have problems. And so it was very important this morning to go through some of the things we'd been through. And you remember, what was faith? Who remembers three things for faith? An awareness of the truth, assent to the truth, and committal of oneself to the truth. Amen? That's what it is. That's faith. It goes beyond just assenting that's true uh, into a real committal and a real going into it with all your being. And we talked this morning about uh, the way God is. And I want to go on now um, because in verse um, 24, which we dealt with this morning, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we saw that the redemption meant that Christ was the sacrifice and the ransom that was paid for us. And we go on in verse 25 and we start coming on to the characteristics of this salvation. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And it's there that I really want to dwell tonight uh, on that simple verse, which um, needs some little explaining really um, it's not uh, easily understood um, whom obviously means that it refers back to Jesus Christ in the previous verse um, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God now the very thing that we have to realize is that God set forth Jesus Christ. And the word set forth actually means purposed. And we need to understand it. The same thoughts in Galatians chapter 3, if you just turn to it. Um, Galatians chapter 3. And verse 1 O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whom are, who, whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And Paul's writing to the uh, Galatian church, and the thought once again is, look, Christ has been set forth, crucified among you. And the word there, actually in the Greek, means placarded. Um, you've seen people who walk around with placards on their backs and fronts and above their head. They walk around and um, 
There's nothing worse than, uh, uh, you know, seeing men with Bible texts placarded. I can't stand that. You get some fruit and nut cases walking around with them. The end of the world is nigh and, you know, all of sin. And be prepare to meet your doom. Uh, and uh, such stuff. That's not what it means uh, in that sense, but it is placarded. In other words, it's set forth very evidently, pushed in front of you. And you need to understand, now God has set forth, he's purposed in his heart, but he's also proclaimed Christ. So it's obvious. What Jesus came to do was obvious. There was one thing about it. Now Jesus could have come and lived as a man amongst the Jewish nation. He could have gone about his way quite quietly and then he could have been crucified having lived a holy life without ever upsetting the apple cart. But God caused him to go around to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Multitudes followed him. He cast out devils. He went into the temple. He got a whip cord, drove all the old Jewish money changers out the temple, upset the tables, um, went around, did everything he could. Now God wanted Jesus Christ to be evidently set forth. So everyone would know what he was, who he was, and then what happened to him. Why, they even nailed to the top of his cross, King of the Jews. It was evidently set forth. And it's something that we need to see. Now, who set it forth? God. God the Father set forth Jesus Christ the Son. And don't you ever forget it. Man didn't do it, God did it. God caused Christ to be crucified. Jesus said when, when Pilate was stupid enough to say, don't you know I have the power of life and death? Jesus said, well, you have no power but that which is given to you. In other words, listen, buddy. He didn't put it this way. Uh, but he was saying, listen, buddy, uh, you don't know. I mean, he could have called 20 legions of angels slaughtered the whole lot of them no problem to him but he didn't and God set him forth and purposed it in his heart um, and what this verse really speaks about is what happened on Calvary's hill and this verse is probably the, the most important thing to do with the characteristic of salvation and this one verse contains in it probably the secret of the whole Christian gospel. It um, brings all the characteristics of it together. And it's probably the most uh, criticized verse in Scripture. And the reason for that is because if people really believe this, then the enemy's going to have a hard time. And you need to understand that all these scriptures, as I said to you at the beginning, the gospel set forth. Now this sets forth the characteristics of what the gospel is. And um, we want to go on. And whom God has set forth. Now God set Christ forth for this. 
to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, I want to deal only with the first thing, and that is the word propitiation. Because it is the word that possibly above every other word man would like to change. What does it mean? No. How many of you have that in your margin? It's translated in Hebrews as mercy seat, and we're going to come to it, but that's not what it means here. You see, that's the trouble with getting a nice marginal Bible where you've got intellects and, and philosophers who sit there and they'll write it down. Propitiation's used in two other places in the New Testament, um, but there are different Greek words for it. Um, from the same root meaning. But actually, the word here means to appease, placate, or avert wrath. To avert wrath. In other words, to turn wrath away, to placate. And there are four elements necessary for propitiation to take place. And if you've got a pen, it's handy to note them. There are four elements necessary. Firstly, or A, there's an offense that needs to be taken away. I mean, you don't need to uh, avert someone's wrath if there's nothing to be angry about, do you? Secondly... There must be a person offended who needs to be satisfied. Thirdly, obviously there must be an offending person or a person guilty of an offense. And fourthly, there must be a sacrifice or some other means of making atonement for the offence. So there must be an offence to be taken away, that is, someone must have done something that needs dealing with. There must be a person offended, because why would you have to put something right if no one was offended? You wouldn't. Uh, thirdly, there must be an offending person, someone who's done it. And fourthly, there must be a method of bringing atonement or of appeasing someone who's angry. You'd all agree with that. It's obvious, really, isn't it? Well, isn't it? So, propitiation contains all of that. But the problem is that if you go to somewhere like um, any of the modern versions of the Bible, any of them, uh, like the heathen revised um, standard version, the American revised standard version, or the American Bible, or any of those, they change the word to expiation. Now, who knows what expiation means? 
Pardon? Who knows, not who wants to guess. Doing well there. Well, expiation, I've written it down, I've got the definition here. <laughs> but expiation is the process whereby you cancel sin and purify the sinner from it. Now, there's a great reason why mankind would like that definition rather than propitiation. Who can think why? Yes, Alan. Pardon? One you have a... That's right. In propitiation you have a God of wrath. In expiation you don't. You have a God of love. Now, basically man would like to transfer everything and to say... God loves you. And so all the modern translations take away what is actually in the Greek and they put a different word in because it suits their theology. And you see, man is dishonest and he doesn't like the idea of a God of wrath. He just doesn't like it. And um, you'll find that, um, and I just want to deal with the error first. Let's deal with the error, okay? Expiation. Then you'll know what it isn't. Uh, there is a teaching around, and people will tell you a teaching, that if a child puts its hand in the fire, it'll get burned. Have you ever heard anyone tell you that? Well, it's a fact, isn't it? Try sticking your hand in the fire sometime. Now, the consequence of putting your hand in the fire is you get burned. Now, what they say and what the um, modernist would say is you actually suffer for sin as a consequence of your actions. In other words... It's your fault you're suffering. Your sin has brought the suffering on you. That's just a natural consequence of sin. Well, it isn't. You see, God's wrath is poured out and is manifest against all ungodliness and unrighteousness now. So, when you suffer... You're suffering because God's angry. You're not suffering just because, well, that's it. If you do wrong things, you know, well, it just happens. That's the humanist attitude. That's the attitude that man loves to put over because he doesn't like the idea of a wrathful God. He doesn't like the idea that God gets angry. And so he puts over this idea and it sounds so plausible. God's all love. Um, you know, he loves you. He wants to forgive you. And uh, they hate the idea of an angry God. But the scripture says the fear of God's the beginning of wisdom. 
and you begin to fear going into sin when you know God's going to get angry with you and he's going to take vengeance on you. That is when you begin to fear to step out, isn't it? But if someone comes, don't worry, he'll forgive you. That's an easy thing, isn't it? Hmm? Isn't it? Should all be jumping up and shouting, Amen! What's wrong? You see, what they've done is they've gone and they've taken the truths of God. And having looked it up, I'll tell you now that in the Old Testament, 20 different words are used when it refers to the wrath of God. You've got 20 different Hebrew words used. All right, in the Old Testament. And they are used 580 times of God. God was wroth with this. His anger was kindled at that. 580 times in the Old Testament, God was angry. Now, that anger was kindled. God was very angry. Now, it's not a doctrine or a teaching that mankind finds palatable. He was angry because men did certain things and his anger was kindled. But you see, we always associate anger with evil, don't we? That's what the humanist tells you. He will tell you that, you know, you've got to be calm, tranquil. In fact, anger, uh, they take to be uncontrollable rage. Now that isn't what God suffers from. He doesn't suffer from uncontrollable rage. God's anger is quite different. What God's anger and what the true wrath of God is, it's not um, something where he just goes mad and just strikes out at anyone. It's a totally different thing. When God gets angry, what it shows is that he has a settled view of sin. God is adamantly 100% against sin. And that's fact. And God's wrath is exemplified in his stand against sin. It doesn't vary. God's wrath against sin is absolute bang death. That's his, that's his whole attitude to it. Big sin, little sin, skating near the brink, God's attitude, death. Now that's easy, isn't it? You know where you stand. Don't you? Hmm? Now, expiation doesn't like that opinion. And um, it was about, um, if you want to know, um, it was in about 1840 that man began to teach this doctrine of expiation. What they began to do was Greek um, scholars went back and they began to study the philosophies of the Greeks. And what they were afraid of, that 
the pagans had this teaching that God, if you did something wrong, God was angry. And so they said, well, Christianity mustn't have a pagan God. So what we'll do is in the gospel, we'll wipe out the idea that God's angry with anyone. And the whole philosophical thought comes from the Greeks. It doesn't come from the Bible at all. So what they try to put over to us is that God isn't angry. How many churches do you go into and hear that the wrath of God is now upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? And it's revealed. How many churches want to preach that? They don't. Because, you see, that portrays God as he really is. And they don't like that. Mankind and a human heart doesn't like the idea that someone's really angry with them. But God is angry against sin. And we have to understand God's anger and God's wrath. But man has chosen to get it out of the scripture. So all the modern translations, and this goes for every single one, is turning around and changing words here and words there. Because the, in the background and in their philosophical thought, what they don't like is the idea of a God of anger and fierce wrath. How many times have you heard people say, well, uh, of course, uh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. You know, it's a day of grace now. We're not under law. We don't want that God. That's what they're saying. But the scripture says, God in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. God doesn't change. And propitiation means, firstly, there's an offense to be taken away. Secondly, there's a person who's offended. Now, who's offended by sin? God is. King David said, when he stole someone else's wife and caused a murder, he said, God against thee and against thee only have I sinned. And then Israel nation was being wiped out like flies. And he got up and he said, I've offended against you, God. The thing is, God looks at sin as an offence against him. He takes it personally. And he's settled. He's absolutely full of wrath about it. Now, it's not easy to approach a person who's angry with you, is it? Hmm? So if you present a gospel of, oh, Jesus loves you. Oh, you know, it's so wonderful. He'll heal you. He'll deliver you. And you leave out the truth that he's a propitiation. What you're doing is bringing them to a false Christ. Because God is angry. Say, so, well, I don't like that idea. You might not like it, but it's so. 
God in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Christ is God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Make no mistake about it, God didn't change. What he did was he manifested his love by sending his son to be a propitiation for us. That's to be a ransom, to take our sin into himself and bear the penalty and wrath of it. He bore God's wrath for us. But God hasn't given up being angry. He's set against sin. And we have to understand that. That's not something that people seem delighted to hear. And when you start looking at it, um, let's look just to go into the New Testament, eh? Um, John's Gospel, chapter 3. Keep your finger where you were. John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 36. This is Jesus talking. All right? Jesus speaking. Uh, let's take um, verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure. All right? He whom God has sent and notice, speaks the word of God. Jesus was acknowledging uh, whom God has set forth. This is, Jesus is saying, he whom God has sent. In other words, God the Father sent me, was Jesus saying. Um, For God giveth not the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life but but what well 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 now those are Jesus' words in the New Testament people don't like that now if you go and tell people like Paul did flee from the wrath of God to come they are not going to queue up for your church Tell them, oh, Jesus loves you. His arms out. He'll meet all your needs. Come to him. He'll fill you with the Holy Ghost. He'll give you joy and peace. And Oh, I like that gospel. But when you come and the sinner comes and you say, look, the wrath of God's against you. Ah, you know, I don't fancy that. It's the way it is, isn't it? Hmm? And that's New Testament. And it's interesting to note that in Romans, in the epistle of Romans we're dealing with, ten times the wrath of God is mentioned. In that one epistle, just Romans. And if you believe that Jesus is all love, but God the Father's the one that's angry, then you better read the book of Revelation. For from beginning to end of the book of Revelation, it speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. And you remember, Jesus' anger was kindled at the temple and he drove the money changers out. I I mean, the the thing is, God gets angry. 
It's not an uncontrollable anger. It's an absolute hate of sin. And he won't put up with it. And he doesn't like the sinner either. So I thought he loved me. Oh, dear. <laughs> and God's not a contradiction. He is set against sin, and he's set against the sinner. You know, if we started preaching the true gospel, instead of this weak-kneed, lovey-dovey, milky stuff, uh, and where you slobber over people and tell them, oh, don't worry, it doesn't matter what you do, you know. God loves you. Oh, he's a great God of love. He's just with arms outstretched. He just wants to, oh, hug you and give you a kiss and say, don't worry, live any old way, you'll go to glory. I mean, it's an appalling gospel, isn't it? Hmm? I couldn't put up with that type of thing. Fancy having people who were totally indisciplined. People who had no fear or respect of God. Hope I'm not upsetting you. You've all gone very quiet. What's wrong? Rejoice. Huh? Glory to God. God gets angry at sin. You don't feel that way, huh? You should. No? Don't be a humanist. Don't side with the sinner against God. They can't help it. Poor little things, you know. It was the way they were brought up to boot. It was their parents, it was their mother, their father, their grandfather. That's humanism. If a person sins, they sin because they want to. They make a choice. Don't you believe it's someone else's responsibility? An individual sins because it's their nature inside. That's what they want to do, so they do it. And that makes God's anger kindled against them. Amen. If you don't have that part of the understanding, you won't understand what propitiation means. That's why I've emphasized the necessity of understanding God's angry. I wouldn't need to appease a person who wasn't angry, would I? Hmm? If I do something and no one gets angry about it, then I haven't got to make atonement. I've not got to appease. You see, what the gospel has turned out to be is Oh, just say you're sorry and Jesus will, will cleanse you. And, and it's all a teaching of expiation. God loves you. 
But listen, God's angry. God's wrathful. And you need someone to stand in between you and God and deal with that anger and take that wrath or you're going to shrivel in hell. Now get that right in your bones. If there wasn't a propitiation, you'd go to hell. Nothing you could do would save you from it. And the only reason that God's wrath isn't poured out on this whole earth and wipes the thing clean is because of Jesus Christ coming. And God the Father sent him to come to be a propitiation. God was the motivator, not man. God chose before the foundation of the world to send his Son to be a ransom for us and to take the wrath of God for us. And on Calvary's cross, Christ, when he was crucified, took the wrath of God into his own body. All the wrath and vengeance of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And if I avail myself of that sacrifice, the wrath of God passes from me. Not just the guilt, not just the realization that I've sinned, but the wrath of God goes. And I need something to get rid of the wrath of God. Don't you? Of course, if you don't believe in the wrath of God, you won't have much faith in his blood. It says through faith in his blood in Romans. How can you have faith in his blood if you don't believe he's angry? It's not a, um, it's just not a nice doctrine. But all around the country, people will tell you, God's all love. How many people have heard that preach from pulpits? He just loves you. Just come to him. He'll forgive you. What a lie. Did you believe that lie? Stupid. I mean, how stupid can you get? The whole Bible testifies that God's not like it. When we start actually seeing what God's like, boy, we have to change our opinions. See what the human heart doesn't like. The Greek philosophers, when they uh, were living, uh, you know, you've got Plato and Socrates and these men, and you will know if you've studied them that... Socrates believed that passion was evil. And it was a great thing with Plato to put over um, the theory that all passion and anger was evil. And so what they wanted to do was to obliterate from their person aesthetically. They wanted to become aesthetic uh, nincompoops. And they wanted to get rid of their, from their personality, passion. All the extreme passions they felt were wrong. And so, they couldn't stand the idea of a God who was passionate. And so what they wanted, 
And what they've put up is a whole theory that God isn't moved by what I do. It doesn't affect God. In other words, God sits up there on a throne somewhere in the sky, probably with long white hair and a big flowing beard, sitting on a throne with two lions, one sitting on either side of his footstool, and he's sitting there and with a crown on his head and he's looking down, and nothing that I do is going to affect him. Now that's the idea that they like. Now this God up there, you see, is the great creator of heaven and earth, and he's not going to get angry. And their whole theory was, nothing I can do will affect God. He's all love. Well, you just got to be kidding. You just read through the Old Testament the number of times he poured out his angry, opened up the earth and swallowed thousands of people just in one go because they rebelled. He sent serpents and into the midst of Israel, wiped out thousands of them. He slew these lot, slew that lot, poured down hailstones, Look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, you can imagine someone standing under the fire and brimstone saying, oh, this is the devil. God's all love. (laughs) It's the devil doing it. It wasn't. God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and he obliterated it. Say, well, uh, don't you believe in a God of love? Of course I do. (coughs) But I believe love that has wrath. (coughs) Don't you? I mean, I have to say that God is a, a dichotomy or has got a split personality. If I find that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different, I must have two gods. Wouldn't you agree? Hmm? But Jesus said he was consistent. He said the wrath of God. Now this was when Christ came. He said the wrath of God's now upon people that don't believe in the Son. Now. And there Jesus was walking the earth, healing the sick, casting out devils, doing wonderful miracles. And you'll find in Acts of the Apostles the same thing happens. They talk about the wrath of God. In Romans they talk about it. In the book of Revelation, John writes about the wrath of the Lamb. But you don't find it a pleasant teaching for people to lay hold on. You know, imagine going home and someone says to you, did you enjoy the meeting? Oh, yes. Oh, I really enjoyed it. It was wonderful. Well, what did they share? On the wrath of God. Oh, it was wonderful. I really got hold of it, you know. I really appreciate it. It really inspired me. But it should. It should inspire you to fear God, if nothing else. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But now we came to, didn't we? And the propitiation is that I need to appease God's anger. 
Christ is set forth by God as the propitiation, the appeaser of God is Jesus Christ. And he made that appeasement on Calvary's cross. True God's angry, but I have a place I can shelter. I can turn around to God when I know God's angry with me and I can say, all right, I deserve your anger. But I thank God, Father, that you sent Jesus to take your wrath for me. And my guilt and your wrath is poured on him. And I can be free from your wrath because of what he did in his sacrifice. And I can make my peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now that doesn't mean that if I go off and sin, God isn't angry. But what it does mean is the wrath has already been dealt with on Calvary's cross. That is what propitiation means. Let's go through it. Number one, an offense needs to be taken away. When I sin... God gets angry. I commit the offence. Secondly, God is offended. Not someone else, but God's offended when I sin. Thirdly, I've got to see that I'm the person who's the offence to God. I'm the one who's done it. Now, if I'm one of these people that always wants to put it off onto someone else, take the sociologists um, of today. They always want to tell you, well, the reason you do this is because when you were two, your mother dropped you on your head. And you really can't help it. And you don't understand because uh, your father was twisted and your mother was backward, you've grown up awkward. And it's not your fault that you walk around like that, but there's just something in you, and you can't help it. And your behavior, now don't worry, God loves you. He'll forgive you. I remember once talking to a man who was a queer, a poof, or a homosexual, or whatever you want to call him. And I said, listen here, my man, God hates sin and he hates homosexuality and his wrath's against you. I said, I've been told God's a God of love. I said, well, he hates you and what you're doing. He said, well, I thought that Jesus' disciples were queer. I said, you What? And anyway, I talked with him, and I pointed out the wrath and the anger of God was against him. And he said, but you don't understand, it's my chromosomes. I felt like doing his chromosomes for him, if you know what I mean. <clears throat> there's, something, there's something that doesn't mix. I can't somehow, there's... I tell you, there's something in me that rises up. I can't stand that form. <laughs> um, 
give me good healthy sin any day if you know what I mean uh, there's something about it that just yeah and God is violently against it look at Romans chapter 1 um, you know uh, for this cause in verse 26 for this cause this was because they wouldn't worship God as God God gave them up unto vile affections for even the woman did change the natural use into that which is against nature and what's worse is that the, um, it also, and likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another. God gave them up to it. The reason people do it isn't because they do it. It's not because their chromosomes do it. It's because God causes them to do it. That's the sign that the wrath of God's upon them. Don't you feel sorry for them? Say, well, but we've got to love them. <laughs> Tell me what you do when you see a little child of two walking towards an open fireplace. What do you do? Now, darling, please don't go over there. When it gets a bit nearer, what do you do? Now, I told you, please don't go over there, dear little darling. You know I love you. I wouldn't want you to fall in the fireplace. Don't go over there. Get away! You know, and the child will respond to that, won't it? That's right! But that is the reaction. There comes a point where God's wrath, he says, now don't, now don't, now! And then you discover the wrath of God coming. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to give you a realization of truth so that when you present the gospel to people, you don't mislead them. It's an awful thing to mislead people hear it preached I mean it just doesn't really inspire people causes them to perspire rather than be inspired they don't understand that that is part of the intrinsic nature of God and that is why there had to be a propitiation there had to be someone to appease God's anger there had to be sacrifice to appease God's anger. God said, in the day that a man sins, he shall surely die. Now that was a righteous judgment of God and it passed on everyone because all have sinned. Remember? It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So death passed on us all. Now there was only one way for man to be redeemed from under that curse of the wrath of God where death was going to come upon us all. And that was for a man to come and live a perfect, holy and pure life and not deserve to die because he was holy and pure and didn't offend against God. And for that same man to come and to say, I'll take their sin into my own body. 
I'll be the substitute. I don't deserve death, but I'll take the death they deserve so they can have your love and your righteousness, which they don't deserve. I deserve it, but I'll take the consequences of their sin. And that's what Jesus Christ said. Father, I'll go down to earth and I will be the sin bearer for this people. I will take all their sin and I will accept your wrath against me so that it isn't poured out against them. And Father said, right son, down you go. And he walked a pure and holy life. And then he showed his power and majesty. And then wicked men, inspired by God, took him and crucified him. And on Calvary's cross, when the heavens were darkened, the wrath of God, the anger of God, and the hatred of God against sin was poured out on an innocent lamb, Jesus Christ. And he became our sin-bearer. The basic thing he bore was not our sin, it was the wrath of God against our sin. Do you understand that? That's the important thing. He took the wrath of God into himself. You see, the thing that is wrong with sin is that God's wrath is kindled against anyone who does it. That's why your conscience troubles you. That's why you find when you do things wrong, you get bothered inside, because God's angry. Do you understand that? You might not like it, but that's the way it is. I was thinking of some of the churches in America if I went and preached that man, they, you wouldn't last a meeting. You'd last about a quarter of a meeting before half of them would walk out. They don't want that type of God. They'd say, well, sorry, you know, this, you know. I remember being in a place once down in Exeter and I was sharing on Jesus Christ and what it meant. I remember a man just standing up and saying, you know, he was shaking all over. And he said, brother, you're ministering tremendous fear. And uh, I was only preaching a normal, everyday kind of message. And, um, for me, and um, he, he, you know, interrupted me and said, I don't want you to go on. And I just said, well, all I can say to you is, I believe every word I've spoken, and furthermore, I'm prepared to die for it. And I just sat down. And as I sat there, someone suggested we sing a hymn. There was a bit of a really kind of, you know when they say you could cut the atmosphere with a knife? Man, you'd have needed a pneumatic drill <laughs> to get through anything. It was turgid. And I threw the gauntlet down. I'm prepared to die for this. And I was at that time. 
and we got up to sing and all of a sudden I heard a crash and down went someone in the front row bang and down went someone in the back row and then I saw people running for the door and the first chap there he opened the door halfway and he was so frightened he yanked and broke the handle off the door and he went through and they went and the presence of God came and people were just met crying out for mercy and <laughs> we had a glorious time we met every evening we'd come and the presence of God had just descend see when people get a grasp of what God's really like and they begin to worship the true and living God and they realize that their lives have to be cleaned up and that it's God you anger when you sin God's anger's kindled and it's got to be dealt with he must be the propitiation for your sin and my sin I must come and I must know that he's appeased the wrath of God so it passes from me so I can come into union and communion with God and when I realize that my heart really lays hold on it then I fear to sin hmm? the trouble is that most people don't fear to sin they like it <coughs> true you sin because you like it is that true or not and you see when God's anger's there and I really get a grasp of how angry God gets then I decide that it's time to retreat it says in the scriptures in the New Testament it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God I don't want to fall into his hands especially when his wrath's kindled do you? I'm running for cover God get me to that propitiation <laughs> I need to appease you you say well surely that's almost a pagan view well it's a Christian view God's anger the way he manifests is different from the pagan he's not lobbing great hailstones from heaven to smite you down straight away he gives you a time to repent but watch it he's got fire and brimstone hanging around up there once Sodom and Gomorrah got too much for him so he just pushed it all over and you know what Sodom and Gomorrah the, the thing that judged them was homosexuality deviations, lawlessness all that type of thing that's why Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out and what's come to our country what's coming across the western nations why they talk of women being equal to men blasphemy against God how can a woman take a man's place she can't and I want to tell you I don't fancy taking a woman's place I'm not going to have kids I'll leave that to my wife I was there when all three were born and it never hurt me at all. I enjoyed it. 
And I don't want to take a woman's place. And she's no right to want to take mine. God deliver us from the, the dirty minds and the twisted mentalities that would invert things and say a woman can take a man's place. She cannot. And nor can a man take a woman's. It's against nature. And it's against God. And God's wrath is kindled against you if you ever subscribe to such a filthy thing. I hope you understand that. Don't you for a second ever do the devil's work for him and support such a pernicious doctrine of the devil. Your natural use of a woman is to bear children. That's her natural use. And to look after those children and to cherish and nourish them and bring them up. They're the future generation. And the natural use of a man is to do an honest day's work and earn enough to feed his family. And that's it. And that's normal. And don't you ever let anyone con you into the humanistic belief that we're all the same on the same level. We're not. And I'm talking about God's opinion. Makes me mad when I hear it. The reason our country is getting decimated is people are turning round and upturning God's values, taking them away. Saying, well, everyone's equal when they're not. It's taking every standard that God has set down as an absolute and twisting it, and in their humanistic philosophies, saying, oh, well, it's not really like that. And you don't know what to believe any longer. The world doesn't know what's right and what's wrong. They riot on the streets because they are told they've got rights. Everyone has a right to work. When I was young, you had to earn the right to have a job. You didn't have a right to anything. You had to earn it. And in God's economy, no one has a right. You can't earn it, Christ paid it. But don't you ever get into the humanistic ideas and change God, who is a God of righteousness and holiness, into a God made into your own image. One you'd like to have that humanistically would suit you. If you flip back to Romans chapter 1, Because, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but came vain in their foolish imaginations. In their imagination, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
more than the Creator. And what do you get today? Man is the great salvation of the world. Man, all you've got to do for man to get him better is give him more money. Educate him better and he'll turn out all right. He won't. He'll turn out more sophisticated in sin. He won't turn out one degree better. Why the arch, the, the bishop of Liverpool suggests all you need to do with Toxteth is put a few million pounds in there. You might as well go pour it down a sewer because that's the place it is. That won't change them. What you need is a gospel preached, a standard set up and law board in, and if they don't like it, they can lump it. Power and force. If I had charge of the country, I'd put the army in there and shoot the rioters. They wouldn't riot the second night. They'd be buried. And that's the end of it. But you see, you have to restrain. Law has to come and bring restraints. Otherwise people, but what do they do? Oh, oh, oh poor people. It's because they're black. I know black people who are quite nice people. They don't throw rocks at me. Yeah. It's because they're um, Chinese. I don't think that makes them bad or good. Just means they've got funny eyes and look a bit jaundiced. I mean, the, the whole thing is, it doesn't, that's not the answer. People say, well, turn around and, and all you have to do is you just, if you only gave them better education. Do you know what better education does? I'll tell you what it does. It causes people to aspire to things that they'll never reach and attain. And the trouble with our society is we've conned people for so long, we've told them, look, if you've got a better education, you're going to be rich and be able to afford everything you want. And the truth of it is, you won't. There always will be some people on the top of the pile. In Poland, it was the communist dictators who were at the top of the pile. Now they're getting ousted off but the people are starving to death in long queues, aren't they, waiting at the shops. If you rob from the rich to give to the poor, what happens is you all become bankrupt. I saw it in China, my wife and I. My wife was brought up uh, at university. She was told by a socialist, the evil man, uh, that um, any man who's a socialist is evil, um, was brought up to, and told how wonderful China was. When she actually got there and saw it, her views drastically changed. Told how improved they were. We saw the improvement. I saw it with my own eyes. I'd rather have inequality and freedom than equality and total denigration of the individual. Destruction of freedom. I'd rather worship God, the God of the individual, than God, the God of the state. Wouldn't you? I want freedom for my children, for every, every individual person. 
And one thing I want freedom for is because Jesus Christ is a propitiation. He's taken the wrath of God for me. I want to come under that and I want to say, Oh God, it's my fault I'm like I am. No one else is to blame. It really has never been anything to do with anyone else but me. I'm the one who's offended. I'm the one who's guilty. Now, Lord, thank you that Jesus took my sin into himself. Thank you he took your wrath. I want to come to that and I want to be reconciled to you. I want to take responsibility for my own actions, don't you? I don't want someone to blame someone else. It's not my mother's fault I've turned out this bad. And it's not my father's fault, it's mine. It's not my mother's fault or my father's fault. My personality's the way it is. It's mine. Say, well, surely the environment matters. No, it doesn't. If you can get a John Newton out of slave trade, going about and, and being treated as a slave, a Negro held him and chained him and starved him. And he had the worst, he should have had the most delinquent time because of his home life and home background, and he turned out one of the greatest preachers the world's ever known. Take George Fox. At uh, 16, he was, he was um, working for a, in a millinery and used to sell things. And at 18, he went out preaching the gospel. He was not of an upper crust, and yet he moved in every realm of society and was greatly used of God. Background doesn't matter. What matters is my relationship with God. And that's what makes all the difference. You can get people who are illiterate. I remember a story I used to hear read. I don't know if you were ever, uh, when, when you were at school, about a verger. And this verger had a job uh, working in a cathedral. And one day a new um, rector was appointed to the cathedral. And this new rector said um, that as a condition of being a verger, all the vergers must read and write, and this verger couldn't. Couldn't read and couldn't write. And so the, the chap rector said, I'm sorry, but you'll have to go. And he said, but I've done this for 30 years. I know nothing else. So the, the chap said, you, sorry, you have to go. So this verger left and he thought, what am I going to do? And as he was walking home, he noticed on his way home, as he was walking home, he felt a bit peckish that there was no sweet shop on his way home. So he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll open a sweet shop. There's none around this area. So he opened a little sweet shop. And he worked and business was successful. He opened another one, another one. In the end, he ended up with about 23 sweet shops opened up. And he was a very wealthy man by that time. And one day he was called to the bank and he 
was going to sign a new lease and the bank manager said look um, Mr. Jones uh, would you read this through and sign at the bottom and he said well I'm sorry he said would you mind reading it for me and the bank manager says what you a wealthy man like that and you can't even read he said what would you be if you could have read and, and written he said a verger at the cathedral <laughs> Education isn't everything. <laughs> Sorry about that, but these funny instances just come in my head. <laughs> That's the way it goes. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Amen? And Jesus Christ is our propitiation. Now, what does it mean, firstly? Come on, what does it mean? Firstly, to be taken away. Firstly, there's got to be an offense that needs taken away. Now, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We did that two verses before. Secondly, there's got to be a person who's offended. God's offended by my sin. I must understand that God gets offended with sin. Thirdly, I'm the guilty one. And fourthly, there must be a method of sacrifice. All right? That brings reconciliation with God. Now, I just want to turn to another scripture. If you'll keep your finger in Romans, if you have it there, and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, um, verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein the candles, was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. This is talking Moses's, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. You know we've studied it. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now particularly speak. Now, this word propitiation in the Greek is the identical word that's used here as mercy seat. All right? It is translated as mercy seat because in the context of this passage it's talking about the tabernacle and it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant and you'll remember there was a overlay, there was a seat of pure gold with two cherubim facing each other over the Ark of the Covenant that Moses made. You'll remember that. Now the mercy seat was the place where the blood was sprinkled once a year. The high priest alone went in once a year and sprinkled the mercy seat with the blood and God forgave sin because that blood was shed 
the sin was confessed and the blood was poured out on the mercy seat. And once a year, all the Jewish nation knew atonement for their sin. Their sin was covered. Now the mercy seat was upon the law. It was upon the manna. And it was upon Aaron's rod that budded. Wasn't it? And the thing that you will notice is that when people opened the Ark of the Covenant to look in, what happened to them? They were slain just like that. They were, God slew them. And they died. Now the reason for that was that they took the mercy away and they were faced with the wrath of God straight. Boom! And that was it. They were dead. What happened to the man who put his hand out to steady it? God slew him. You see, you couldn't approach to God but via blood. Now, I can't approach to God, a God of wrath, and come to a realization of God's love until I come via the blood. Propitiation through faith in his blood, it says in Romans. He takes the wrath, he's the appeaser, but it's by faith in his blood. I believe that his blood shed for me on Calvary's cross cleanses me from my sin. Amen? You'll follow that. Now that blood is sprinkled, of course, in the Holy of Holies in heaven, not on earth, for me. I believe that blood was presented to the Father when he rose again from the dead. And I believe that he's entered into that veil in the glory and he's there for me and he is my advocate and you need an advocate when someone's offended he speaks on my behalf to God who's righteously offended with sin and when I come I employ the best advocate there ever was Jesus Christ who knows everything and knows every argument But the only one he uses with Father is, Father, I shed my blood on Calvary's cross and took your wrath into myself so he could go free. Free from guilt, free from the wrath of God, and free from the power of sin. That's what I shed my blood for and died on Calvary for, Father. Here, he's appealing to me. He's come in my name. He believes in the blood. He believes in the shed blood. He believes in the cleansing. And he's got faith in that blood. Father, I'm the propitiation. I'm the person that's taken the judgment. I'm the appeaser. And Father looks at Jesus and said, That's right, son. You did die for him. That's right, you did take my wrath. What he's doing now has kindled my anger. But I realize... You took it for him. And at that point, God's anger is turned aside. And we can walk and commune with a holy God. When we acknowledge that and through faith come to it, God forgives and turns our sin aside. And it turns his wrath aside. But the wrath of God's revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men and still is. Only those who come to Christ and have faith in that blood 
and live and walk according to his will have a propitiation I want to be in that don't you hmm? I want to know that God's dealt with my sin and that I'm not under the wrath of God but I'm in a place where he can love me and bless me amen I want to know that my sin is gone not in part to the whole it's nailed to his cross and I bear it no more bless the Lord bless the Lord oh my soul amen isn't that what you want to know I want to know Jesus Christ as my propitiation God set him forth as that God has exemplified and shown Christ to be the propitiation have you ever received him in that way did you realize God's anger was kindled against all sin did you realize in his love he sent his son to take the righteous judgment of God into himself that is the truth the Hebrews never misunderstood God they understood his wrath and anger what they did which was so wrong is they rejected the one who was sent forth from the father to be the propitiation they crucified the Lord of glory that's what they did wrong they had a good understanding of what God was like they didn't like it so they changed it for the precepts of men rather than the law of God because they couldn't stand the law of God they said it was too hard God wants us to fulfill his word to live his way Jesus Christ is set forth this day your propitiation he is the one who makes things right he's the one who stands and turns aside the anger of God from you isn't that wonderful just having faith in his blood it's real let's pray Father, thou knowest how we have been told so many things about thee. How we've been misled so many times. Forgive us, O oh God, for our human thoughts. Forgive us, O oh God, for the wrong understanding. And Lord, by the Holy Ghost, burn the word in our hearts that we might see Jesus Christ as the appeaser of the wrath of God Jesus Christ is a great sin bearer and the bearer of the wrath of God not just our sin but the righteous wrath of God Lord open our minds and our hearts to understand it Lord 
forgive us if we've made you seem more human than God. Give us a quick understanding and a responsive heart. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your Son to bear your wrath in our place. Thank you, your love sent him forth. Thank you, O God, that the action was on your side, not ours. Righteous judgment had to be satisfied, and you satisfied it in your Son. Lord, touch each heart, we pray. Lord, open our hearts and our eyes to understand. Keep and bless each one. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Expresses that which we've talked about. Caroline's just going to sing the first verse for those who don't know the tune.
glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but a whole, is nailed to his cross. I want you to understand one thing. Though the wrath of God's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. His blood has taken away my unrighteousness and ungodliness. I'm cleansed by it. I'm reconciled to God. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more, for he bore it for me. He's my propitiation. He reconciled me to God. We're going to sing it. My sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. My sin. No more praise. 
Oh. 